developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 357. As usual, I'm Jonathan Bailey from the site Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com and also a variety of Twitter handles. And now broadcasting from a new undisclosed location, the great attorney, Evan Sherez, who is going to have a quick word with you about this podcast and the nature there of it. <laughs> well, it's good to be here again from a new undisclosed location. You know, who knows where I could be? Maybe my new place five blocks down the road from the last one. You know, maybe not. Um, but yeah, like you alluded to, again, I have to remind everyone that uh, this is not legal advice and that you shouldn't take anything I say as legal advice and that this is just my general commentary on the week's stories. So uh, now we could uh, yeah. move on to uh, what, what we're going to talk about today, John. Yeah, we, we've got a lot of really interesting stuff today, and I'd like to make a note for anyone who is joining us live that we actually have enabled the Q&A feature for the first time. Um, we're experimenting with it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and I apologize. We will tinker with it again. But if you are in watching this on the link I tweeted out, if you just go up to the menu in the upper right-hand corner of your uh, Google Plus viewing page and the Q&A uh, feature you will be able to ask uh, you should at least be able to ask us questions and we will happily try to answer them to the best of our ability um, it I'm hoping it actually works <laughs> I'm kind of skeptical about it right now maybe tinkering with this and getting this to work later on um, but anyways yeah we've got a lot to go retro we're a week behind that's one so two weeks worth of news um, anything going on you want to talk about before we jump in hmm uh, well uh, not really. Like I said, uh, I'll uh, I'll be joining uh, Malfi Home Furniture soon, and the visa is in the middle of getting taken care of, so I'm excited about that. Should be done within a week or two, and um, uh, not much else. John, how about you? Um, the only thing I've got on, I think Evan just dropped out. Yeah, we, I should warn everyone also. Evan's internet access less than ideal at his new place right now. John, you can't hear me? I, I You're back now. Okay. Did I cut out? Yeah, like I said, I just yeah. moved in here, and uh, we're, we're in the middle of replacing our service. So uh, if it does cut out, I do apologize yeah. about that. Uh, but uh, it should yeah, be up and running. Yeah. 
I, uh, it's okay. Yeah, hopefully we'll get internet that isn't potato uh, before too much longer. <laughs> so, but yeah, I understand. Agreed. Believe me, I, I there uh, my old apartment that that was atrocious, and so I, I I sympathize with you and hope that you're able to uh, get it straightened out quickly for yes. everyone's sake. For your sanity, if nothing else. My, yes, my streaming capability is extremely vital to my mental health. So, Yeah, how are you ever going to take advantage of what we'll be talking about later in this podcast? <laughs> well, I think um, actually music quickly. is fine. I think I can stream music. It's just probably video, hockey games, and Netflix. That's what I can't do right now. It's really yeah, awful. It's, it is a um yeah so you no know, Netflix well then I'm dead I have no entertainment now I guess I'd have to go out in the world and meet people if I live there you know that sounds horrendous it does oh god oh no but yeah so we do uh, have a today we will start with the um, Marvin Gaye battle and what's been going on in the last two weeks with that surprisingly still very very hot in war despite the uh the verdict mm-hmm and then what's after that. DVD Fab. Uh, this one's an interesting one. It deals with the DMCA and the anti-circumvention rules. So we'll be dealing with that. Exciting stuff. I know. And from there, it looks like we slide in some Beastie Boys again. <laughs> and then and after then that, we're on to uh, the Universal Music. Universal Music. Uh, yeah. <laughs> countersued in a battle against uh, in-flight, which is a service which brings music to, uh, you can guess, airplanes while you're in flight. And we don't leave Universal behind for, well, we don't leave them behind at all because we come right back to them about a digital class action royalty They're at, uh, dispute. They're actually the last major label to settle this, it turns out, so this ought to be mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, after that, yeah. I think we're talking about uh, Ted, my, uh, you know, my favorite uh you know, talking teddy bear. You have multiple talking teddy bears. <laughs> uh, well, you know, there. I have my own, of course. Oh, know, well, not as good of a guy oh, as Ted. Of course, of course, that's yeah. fair. I also wished upon a star in the middle of a uh, in the middle of a storm, but don't sue me. Um, and then we go on to uh, MGM uh, and their uh, lawsuit over Raging Bull, which has been from the. Uh, wait, wait, didn't the Supreme Court rule on this one, Files? Um, and the answer is yes, but it's still not over. Right, and then uh, <laughs> on to the Soul Clash, apparent ripoff yeah. of World of Warcraft, a game that took two years of my life away. So, oh um, uh, well, we should... we'll avoid that. <laughs> we'll avoid uh, too much discussion, and they're just in case you know, start getting the DTS or something, they start really, you know, reaching for the mouse, the gaming mouse. Yeah, yeah, that would be a problem. And uh, finally, wrapping it up with a trip to the ocean and title, uh, the music service that has. The musicians all a flutter and the a little less so it seems from what I've read. So this will yeah. be good. There's a lot of press on this. Oh. Uh, well, that's what happens when you get you know Jay Z, Madonna, Daft Punk, uh, uh, Dead Mouse. They're involved. Beyonce, uh, Nicki Minaj, all throwing their star power behind something. Press will happen. You know, mm-hmm. can't guarantee financial success, but I- I can guarantee you press. Okay, you want to jump on in on our first story about uh, the latest in the Blurred Lines case? Sure. So we last left it um, with uh, a uh, decision that there was infringement. So we found that uh, Pharrell and Robin Thicke 
were both found to be liable for copyright infringement uh, by the jury. But yeah, to the tune of $7.4 million. Right. But there's obviously more players than that. There's a record label. You know, the T, there was TI. There's a number of record labels, actually. Uh, Interscope Records, Universal Music, Star Trek Entertainment. Uh, were not uh, found to be liable. And so yeah. uh, the Marvin Gaye family is looking to uh, add to the potential list of pockets. Uh, and this brings in issues of secondary liability. So if, excuse me, if uh, Pharrell and Robin Thicke uh, are the ones who are directly responsible and you had other people involved in the manufacturing and distribution side of it, uh, that's what the Marvin Gaye family is trying to argue is that other people have distributed and uh, yeah. taken a, a, a secondary role. Uh, in the distribution of this copywriting of this infringing material, so uh, we want uh, we want money from them too. And this is a you mentioned the damages that can be earned from this. There's additional damages they can go after, but there's also the issue of possible injunction. It's going to be a lot easier to get an injunction if they're able to hold the record label and other parties at least partially liable. Yes, that's right. Uh, in order to get a, uh, an injunction, which I don't think they really want, I don't think they really want to stop this song from no. being heard across the country. It's a it's a tool uh, in order to bring these people to the table, uh, you know, uh, threatening to stop uh, them their ability to distribute the song is is a massive threat because do you know how many different licensing deals they have with tons of other uh, organizations and they'll have to probably they'll have to take measures to to basically stop this song from being played, it's just a massive undertaking that would probably cost them, you know, a huge portion of what they may have to pay out in legal fees if to, just, to just settle it. So yeah. uh, an injunction is a huge and, and, and It would not just be an injunction against the sale. It would be an injunction against, like, streaming to bars. The uh, YouTube videos would undoubtedly go down. Um, so, yeah, it would be a huge deal. It would be, a, a, a tremendous effort to stop the distribution, and it would also be a lot of money lost in the process. Yeah, uh, you know it's next to impossible to stop it because you're gonna have like hard copies in 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 in. I mean, I don't know if there are record stores anymore, but uh, I don't know if there are many anyways. But there still are a few. They'll have to make sure that those copies are accounted for. It's it's a lot. So yeah, but this effort basically the logic is quite simple here. The jury did not find them liable, but the um, lawyers for the gay estate are coming back and saying, well, it pretty much flows. Whose logic Williams and Thick did infringe. Therefore, da 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 da, connect A B C D. They had to as well. The jury was not correct in that right. finding. Both sides are trying to uh, use this tool. It's called a judgment as a matter of law, which pre-trial is called summary judgment. But uh, it's also actually after. It's 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 a, it's a measure that you can use after trial is done. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, for outside is you know trying to seek both a new trial and a judgment as a matter of law that they were not infringing. But uh, Marvin Gaye's side is trying to say that, hey, uh, if the jury found that this measure, this song, was an infringing song uh, on our composition, yet all these other parties are distributing it, which is one of the exclusive rights of copyright holder. So how is it possible that this is both, A, a copyright violation, but B, not a uh, a copyright violation for the people who are distributing this the song, so it, it didn't make sense for them. So they're trying to come back and say that even though the jury felt that they, these record labels were not liable, they should be. And yeah, that's basically it.
and there's no ruling on this. This is just simply what the gay estate is asking for. But as you pointed out, this really is a negotiation tactic at the end of the day. It's a means to force, um, you know, the, the the everyone involved, the labels, Pharrell Williams, Robin Thicke, to the negotiating table to actually, you know, prevent an appeal and prevent a long drawn out legal battle, which both sides have signaled they are digging in for. So, right. at the end of the day, the gay estate has no interest and no gains no benefit from a l protracted legal battle. Now, now that they've got their jury award, they want to yeah. you know wrap this up and the Williams they thing. They don't gain anything either from stopping the song from being played. That no. that is that's not what they want. Uh, they just want these record labels uh, at the table and put their pockets open. Now, um, the more interesting thing this week about this case, which is actually what I focused most of my attention on, um, was uh, this, the op-ed about uh, from from the lawyers uh, of the gay side. I don't know if you had the chance to read it, but uh, it was called How I Won. Yeah, it was uh, posted to the Hollywood Reporter, yeah. That's right. So... I think there were a few points here which I'm just going to claim victory on because I think they were, there were some of the things that I said over the past few few podcasts about mm -hmm. what this case is really about, and, and I think what this lawyer said really kind of backed me up on that. Um, uh, before we start that, though, there's um, the, he starts the case by by really like kind of putting everything into perspective for 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 the reader on how this uh, how this case became a case and not a transactional, uh, hey, let's get a licensing deal worked out between the gay family's transactional lawyer and uh, Pharrell and Thick. So uh, he reminds us that this was Thick and Pharrell who launched the lawsuit using a tool called uh, a declaratory relief suit, which is, you know, a preemptive strike in the, uh, in the legal uh, context. You basically sue somebody else who you think may sue you and say, Hey, court, let us know if we're infringing. So, um, you know, this tactic is often a way of getting people who may not be willing to really litigate, who don't have the money to litigate, you kind of getting them uh, uh, kind of between a rock and a hard place in the negotiating uh, uh, process. Yeah. So if we're going to sue you, it's like our guns are ready. You know, we're ready to go. So are you really ready to go? So... Uh, he talks about that and then, and then kind of uses that to frame them as the bad guys here. They're like, oh, well, really, there was um, this guy Levinson. He was the gay's transactional lawyer, and, you know, he reached out to discuss uh, like possible uh, settlement or just possible royalties because they, the gay family, felt that, you know, this was our song. And so uh, he discusses and the, 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 um, the lawyer, Richard Bush, discusses how Levinson basically ended up reaching out to him and being like, hey, we're going to need you. And so this, this is how he ended up getting involved with the case. And so uh, a few things he talks about is, A, reiterating their stance that they felt handicapped by not being able to play the sound recording because they could only play, remember, those like meaty versions of the uh, actual composition. So they were definitely planning an appeal had they, uh, had they lost. But uh, he moves on to say that... Uh, uh, the other side was wrong in their legal strategy by arguing that there's no real match, kind of note for note, which is what he says that the, the Pharrell side was, is that, you know, they kind of had their musicologist come on and be like, okay, listen to how these three notes sound together, and then these three notes, and then these three notes. And he felt that this was a bad strategy because the jury instructions ultimately ended up saying is that this doesn't have to be a perfect match. You know, it just has to be pretty close. And so uh, he thought that their strategy and their musicologists 
were better, and that's why they won. Uh, they had two great musicologists who was able to explain that, you know, uh, just because things sound the same in the same genre doesn't mean that they're not a copy of each other. Is that, is that while lots of songs sound the same in the same genre, these two were, like, extremely similar, and their musicologists were able to hammer that point in. And obviously that other point that we talked about is that um, Bush thought that Thick and Pharrell couldn't just keep their story straight. Um, yeah. Talked about being inspired and then not being inspired, and then there was the deposition, and then there was the Vicodin. So this was a case about good expert witnesses, and it was a case about bad uh, defendants, or in this case, plaintiffs. Well, yeah, um, technically plaintiffs, but spiritual defendants, if you will. If there is a such thing as a spiritual defendant, there should be. We should make that a thing. Um, but yeah, it, and I agree with the lawyer. Basically, you know, you can't con keep contradicting yourself and expect the jury to believe you. That's not how life works. <laughs> yeah, you ruin your credibility. And credibility means a lot in these type of sort of ambiguous cases. You know? Yeah. Uh, if the jury doesn't like you, they can find a way to punish you. It's pretty I simple. I mean, in such a tight case like this, likability and believability is so important. I mean, likability and believability on the stand is so important <laughs> in any case. I mean, you look at... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, criminal defense cases, civil litigation, you know, cases. It's uh, there's a reason why trial lawyers are great trial lawyers, regardless of really what field they're trying. A lot of trial lawyers have a have a really broad spectrum of, of cases because, you know, regardless of the material, they know how to make a witness look bad, and uh, that's that's the skill. It is a skill. It's a it's a it's a very it's a it's it's a public speaking skill as much as anything, and a, a a personal relations skill, and it's almost independent of the law in a in period. In many ways, you could probably take someone without much background in law and make them a decent you know trial attorney easier than you could make them a non-trial attorney in a lot of ways. Yep, and uh, that's why everyone's wrong about this case being a landmark for. Uh, for uh, copyright infringement cases, because you have a big-time celebrity, you know, who knows what's going in with the minds of, of the jury. You know, you could have somebody who doesn't like that his his music video is full of naked women and could hold that against you. So, like, when you have such a high-profile uh, defendant, or like, a defendant is not the right term, of course, he's a plaintiff. But I just want—I feel like if I said plaintiff, most people who are listening won't really understand what I'm talking about. So, I'll just yeah. use his name. We'll say when you've got a guy. Uh, like Thick, who uh, you know claims to be on drugs at one point, and then uh, you know claims to be inspired uh, by Marvin Gaye in media. You can't really uh, you know put that past uh, the jury as uh, you, know, you can't really put that fact past it being influential on the jury. And the other aspect of it is right now what we have is a district court award here from a jury. And yes, right. it's important. Yes, it's relevant. Yes, it could be pressing to other cases, but it's still not an appellate court or God help us a Supreme Court ruling which really does have that influence on other cases. It has a lot more weight the higher up it goes. Right, and it's not like a, a specific point of law yeah. was decided. It's not like the you know the test for uh, copyright infringement and substantial similarities was changed. It's, I, would be, uh, I would be very surprised if we see this cited in a large number of cases moving forward. I'd be very surprised. Yeah, I don't think so either. You know, because like I said, it's a it's a jury determining a question of fact, and there aren't really very subtle uh, issues of law having been decided. Uh, no. I want to leave this this case on with one 
really awesome quote, and I think it was really an interesting way to humanize himself. Is that uh, at the end of this, the, at the end of the the article, he was saying how you know once the trial wrapped up, this was like, and I mean, this could be complete bull trying to you know really uh, take advantage of the moment, but he's like, you know, this was the most important trial I've ever done, and you know after the trial was done. Uh, I couldn't stop thinking about anything else but the trial. He's like, I did everything to distract myself. I went to the movies. I walked on the beach. I did a Sons of Anarchy marathon on Netflix. And then Tuesday, it finally came. We didn't start the case, but we made sure to finish it. And Billy <laughs> Joel was somewhere going, that's copyright infringement. Yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, it was. It was. Anyways, it was an interesting article. And it is an interesting article. And, and actually, the um, the counsel for uh, Thick and Williams also wrote a counter op-ed piece that's also available. Oh, really? Report. Yeah. Uh, about you... why they feel the ruling was wrong and how they feel they got there, basically. So, we're checking out. But I and will. that's kind of weird to me. That's a bit like you know, you know, like the the end of like the Super Bowl, how they interview both coaches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, coach, what do you think went right today? Well, we scored more points than the other team, Jim. That's how we won. Oh, it reminds me of, um, like, after Judge Judy. Oh, God, those, like, yeah. <laughs> those fake cases, they interview the, uh, they interview the, uh, the two parties. Yeah. I, I, I've got to say, I've watched more than my share of TV court dramas, and I actually find them pretty interesting from a legal perspective a lot of times. The, um... I, I think they're actually good for the public, strangely, because they do bring some basic concepts of law into the public hands that needs to be put out there. Yeah, I mean... The importance of written contracts being yeah. a recurring theme on these shows. Yeah, the importance of, okay, do you have any evidence? Yes. Uh, your Honor, I swear. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, judgment to the other person. Yeah, exactly. That happens so many times, it isn't even funny. So yeah, John, you want to tell us about what happened with the beast with uh I'm sorry with uh DVD DVD Fab. Fab? Yeah, this is this is a bizarre bizarre case. Now, in the United States, underneath the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, there is a a set of rules, it's called the anti-circumvention clause, which basically means if somebody protects a copyrighted work with DRM or digital rights management software, the breaking of that is illegal outside of some very narrow exemptions that are granted by the Copyright Office once every three years. When they come down from their mountain with two stone tablets, I may be thinking of the wrong story. Um, But the point remains, other than those exceptions, it is illegal to do it. Now, there is a company based in Hong Kong, I believe it is in China, called DVD Fab, and they make something that that their product, DVD Fab, does exactly that. It breaks the encryption on DVDs so you can back it up and store it and whatever. And this encryption on DVDs known as the AACS encryption is hopelessly borked. It has been broken for probably longer than I've been running plagiarism today. And it's old, old news that it is so easily easy to break. However, the organization that still manages it, AACS-LA, Acronym hell is what we're entering here. Because remember, DVD is an acronym too. Um, uh, basically, has sued DVD Fab, and they've already secured uh, some injunctions against their um, sale and distribution in the United States. But now they've gone back and they've secured. And those injunctions, by the way, also cost them their social media accounts. Um, they lost the ability to post to Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere. Right. They lost their website for a while. Their U.S. payment processors. 
you know, this company's been hit pretty hard already, yeah. but now AACSLA has gone to court and gotten additional injunctions. Um, but at this point, all of AACS's activity exists pretty much within China, so it's kind of unclear how enforceable these injunctions are going to be. Right. Like you said, John, you cannot traffic in software that lets you break into yeah. other software. That's kind of the basics of it. Uh, if that other software has kind of, you know, some circumventions to prevent uh, uh, copying, etc. Um, like you said, uh, this company has no remaining real assets, you know, within the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. Mm -hmm. So uh, that kind of has been done. And so for some reason, uh, they've decided to go back to U.S. courts to try and stop uh, this company from operating in, you know, mainland China. We're not talking Hong Kong. Uh, We're talking... Uh, okay, so it actually is mainland China. Okay. Yeah. So... In these orders have been issued, you know, ordering these Chinese companies that are working with DVD Fab to stop working with them, and uh, ordering that these domain names, which are you know Chinese domain names, to shut down. Uh, but you know, these are outside of the jurisdiction of U.S. court orders, and so uh, you know, it'll remain to be seen what exactly their tactic is here. Um, there was one commentator uh, that I one commentator said this. He's like. Uh, I don't really understand why they did this. It's like a judge ordering ISIS to stop killing people. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, way to put it. And by the way, DVD Fab apparently also breaks the encryption on Blu-ray, too. It's one of the reasons why it still remains relevant um, today. Hmm. But, I mean, one of the things that was interesting was supposedly with DVD Fab, one of the things they had done was make it so that um, people like me in the United States could not access the software, use geo-blocking basically. I'm not running any VPNs or anything, and I was able just to tinker, and it was letting me download the main package right here, right now. Hmm. So it, obviously that isn't going on. It's accessible to U.S. Um, customers, but that doesn't mean they're going to have any luck enforcing these injunctions, given that in China this anti-circumvention clause doesn't exist. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't really speak to that, unfortunately. But maybe, maybe there's something in the works that we haven't uh, maybe. seen yet. I, I know we were talking about uh, the U.S. Trade Commission and uh, 3D printing, uh, and, and they were seeking authorization for the, uh, you know, to be able to shut down certain online uh, access to uh, copies of 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 a, of a violated patent. This is a few weeks ago we were talking about this yeah. about how they went to the. Uh, the Trade Commission to try to see if there's online jurisdiction there, so maybe there's a place there somewhere if if uh, if, if that whole line of uh, reasoning ends up kind of holding with the uh, the the Trade Commission. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Um, taking you want to shift gears and talk about some Beastie Boys? Sure. Yeah. So I don't know if you. Heard, have you heard of this band before, Paul Paul Boutique? Or? I no, 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 no. Mm. I have no idea who they are. Yeah, I don't know who they are either. <laughs> so, uh, the Beastie Boys are involved with a lawsuit over a sampling that they've uh, allegedly used. I don't think that's really at issue here. I think they they, they have used uh, bits and pieces of Paul Boutique's uh, copyrighted material, and I guess their songs, and. Uh, 
you know, uh, the Beastie Boys have been sued over their use. But here's the thing. It's the who's suing them. It's a company called Tough America. And Tough America has been ruled to not have standing. So even though uh, there was no license here, there's no case because the right person has to sue. I can't go and sue somebody for using somebody else's copyright copyrighted material. I have to actually have either. An you can't just like jump in on the Marvin Gaye case. Like, hi, I'm suing randomly. Right. So who can sue uh, someone who owns the copyright, a copyright co-owner, or an exclusive licensee? So those are your two, you know, main options. So who is an exclusive licensee? Well, uh, an exclusive licensee is, you know, basically exactly what it sounds like. Someone who is has the exclusive right, only they can do it, uh, to uh, the copyright of a, a given work. So uh, I think we've discussed this in the past, is that in order to give an exclusive copyright license to somebody, all of the co-authors of a given piece need to sign on. Because let's say you and I are co-authors of something, and I'm talking to, you know, person C, and person C's like, hey, you know, I love that song you and John wrote. Can you, you know, license it to me, but make an exclusive license? And I'm like, hey, sure, that, that sounds good to me. I've then uh, stopped you as a copyright co-owner from licensing it to somebody else. So as one co-owner over another co-owner, I can't stop you from doing that. That's, that's something we have to do together. Uh, and so that's what happened, is that the court ended up finding that only two of the three uh, Paul Boutique authors had assigned copyright, or had assigned a license, so had, had given a license to the company. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, even though it was uh, described as an exclusive license, since only two of the three authors were the ones who were signatories, uh, it, it didn't count. And so yeah, as a and non it, license, it, it, yeah, no static. And this is very bizarre because two of them signed in 1999. Going way back here, <laughs> to him, signed in 1999, and apparently that deal was pretty straightforward. But then we fast forward to 2012. The third guy comes on board and signs a quote-unquote right to sue, which doesn't actually exist as a right. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. Um. He was yeah, trying to are. assign his right to sue to somebody else. You know, let's say uh, that's kind of like it's almost like um. John, you've got uh, you know a gardening business, and you have done the gardening already, so that's done. And you're and you owe me a hundred bucks, so I'm like, hey, why don't you give me your right to collect like that that gardening, you know, uh, accounts payable you've got? Yeah. So uh, you sign that to me, and then I'm like, and if this person doesn't pay me, then uh, I'm gonna sue them. But that's not even what happened here. It's not even the accounts payable here. Is that like? He's gone to be like, hey, I've got this right to sue. Who wants to buy it? And uh, obviously, uh, Tough America, who was two, one third away from an exclusive license, went up to this person and like, okay, let's make a deal. But for some reason, they didn't just assign the third part of the exclusive license. They yeah, didn't. and that's the problem. Is a right to sue does not an exclusive license make? Exactly. So they, they worded it strangely, and that you know stopped them from uh, having standing in the case. Now, here you want an interesting bit of trivia about the Beastie Boys. Um, in the past, uh, since 2012, they have won, they've completed the trifecta. They have won one case where they secured a favorable settlement. That was the Goldie Blocks case. They have won one case with, with a jury trial. That was the Monster Energy um, remix case thing going on there. And now they've won one case on a summary judgment. 
trifecta. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who their lawyers are to be honest with you, but they're probably really good. That that that, that that's like a triple crown there or something of litigation right there. That's pretty impressive. So again, I think that's since, since 2012. So three years they have won three separate battles in three separate ways. Just, just it's just pretty impressive. Well, let's talk airplanes for a bit. This is a fascinating one. Um, Universal Music is being countersued by in-flight entertain by the company in-flight um, and its parent company Global Eagle. You gotta love these generic names for these companies. Hey, can we come up with a more generic name for our company that does stuff in-flight? In-flight, excellent, good work. Meeting adjourned. Get on, go home, everyone. Um, but yeah, this is uh, bizarre because basically what it centers around is that in-flight, as you might imagine, basically does the music service that you tune into whenever you are in flight. And yeah, there's the one with like 30 songs that never has a track you actually want to listen to, so you go back to watching movies. Um, you know, that those those guys. Um, well, right, so apparently uh, these different record labels have been basically providing them with songs for a long time, kind of saying, hey, you know, this is the newest thing, can you put it in your... Uh, in-flight service, and it seems like they operated in a pretty uh, laissez-faire way for a long time. Yeah. Uh, and then in 2009, uh, they contacted Universal, this is in-flight, to fill gaps in its licensing coverage. So I guess they just really wanted to get, you know, their foundation, their legal foundations uh, set in stone, which would be, you know, a highly intelligent thing to do if you're running uh, a, a business that's based on intellectual property. Um, and so the label agreed to a licensing fee and then promised to send uh, in-flight a licensing agreement, but never did. And so uh, this laissez-faire arrangement kind of kept Broke going down. where songs would be sent their way and then they would be played on their flights. Yeah, and one of the issues that's been kind of entertaining in watching this has been where do you obtain the license from? Sounds like a simple question, but don't forget most licenses for music are distributed on a national level, country to country. And so that works great as long as you're doing domestic flights. What happens when your flight goes from the United States to Ireland or you know, to Germany? Suddenly you end up in international territory here, and that can become a very thorny issue for doing this kind of licensing. And so that's one of the reasons why this laissez-faire uh, system sort of existed was because there wasn't you know, necessarily a streamlined, easy, single path for getting all the rights and clearances you needed. And that's also yep. one of the reasons why we've got this lawsuit. Well, so yeah, and, and, uh, come in November 2013, uh, all of a sudden a cease and desist letter uh, arrives at InFlight, uh, and uh, we, were, we ended up in a lawsuit situation. Yeah, and now InFlight is sort of turning the tables and filing a countersuit saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, we had this arrangement, if you will, for so long, and you're just pulling the rug out from under us with this. Right. You've tolerated it up until now. You've known about it up until now. This is, you know, this is basically unfair. <laughs> right. So uh, a number of the countersuit uh, claims are uh, misrepresentation. Uh, and interference with contractual relations because obviously in-flight does a lot of business with the airlines themselves. And so, you know, when if you're an airline and you see that there's a potential dispute between uh, your music host and the 
music companies, you don't want to get involved with that. You don't want to let these these people right. play music on your planes, and then you're all of a sudden liable as well because it's happening. You know, you're involved also. You're they're your planes playing the music. Uh, you know, you're reproducing and publicly performing these copyrighted material, and so uh, one. Uh, cause of action available to businesses is the interference with contractual relations. Uh, you know, it, it differs from state to state, but the basic premise is that you know, if if there's a, a an unlawful way of of coming between two parties who kind of have a contract, then you can end up being uh, liable for that. Yeah. Uh, the it all the the counterclaim also has uh, or alleges affirmative defenses, which are uh, the basic concept of yes, we're doing it. But here's why it's legal, uh, and those two claims are uh, estoppel and latches. Estoppel is uh, can, kind of an equity way of saying someone else should be stopped from suing me because their conduct um, makes them kind of ineligible uh, to uh, to sue us. They, you know, something that they did stops them from stopping our alleged wrong. Yeah. And then latches is when you kind of sit on your rights for a long yeah. time. So and we've been talking a lot about damage. latches and copyright lately yeah. because of the Raging Bull case, which we'll be coming to. That's so. right. That was before the Sit tight. We're not going to uh, abuse latches on this one. We will be returning to it quickly. Ah. No, um, okay. Uh, but we don't leave Universal behind for long because here they are again seeking and finalizing a settlement, it seems. A, a pretty important one. Yeah, this one goes all the way back to that Eminem lawsuit a mm -hmm. uh, number of years ago, and I didn't actually know that this was still around. I figured this was all settled up, but uh, you know, once once Eminem was able to win that distinction between licensing and sales, everyone else jumped on board. Uh, and so the basic story here is that um, when the music revenue shifted from CD and hard copy sales to individual uh, downloads and I guess we're already past that stage, right? We're on to streaming now. But when that the first shift happened, um, the record labels or whoever owned the company, uh, owned the uh, the distribution system like iTunes, would pay the artists uh, their percentage of uh, sales income rather than their percentage of licensing income. So during the question, we'll say like, "Hey, you're going to make 20% of whatever sales." Uh, you make and you're going to make 50% of whatever licensing deals we can do on your behalf and you're going to make 70% of your live touring revenue. You know, that's obviously spitballing numbers. They're probably all much smaller than that. But uh, in this case, um, labels and iTunes were paying artists uh, only 15, something like 15%, which was the general number for when uh, a song was sold. And that's for their digital sales but you know Eminem comes up and says hey you know you can't actually sell something online right you're reproducing a copy the, you know the, the the purchaser is reproducing a copy and he needs a license for that copy so it be, it's really a license when you mm -hmm. download a song off iTunes you know which and you know, if you read that other. iTunes terms of server sure it looks like a license to me <laughs> right you're, you're 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 essentially not allowed to resell the songs that you've purchased because you actually have an exclusive license to that song and not uh, a physical copy of it. You haven't actually purchased or owned something. You just have a license. And so 
Eminem was like, hey, if it's a license, if you're telling all your, your customers it's a license, then why are you telling me I only make 15% when I'm supposed to make 50? And so uh, that went through the legal system, and once he won, you know, everybody else who may have, you know, a total of 20 sales uh, banded together, and we had class action suits. And these, this is, I think, was the last one to be settled. Yeah, and, and that's what's and, and basically, Sony and Warner have already um, done the, their settlements. They seem to have gone through these motions already. And the basic MO seems to be, okay, we're not going to give you the 50-50 split that you would for a true licensing thing, but, yeah, we'll knock you up a few percentage points, you know, type yeah, thing. Exactly. That's what negotiation is. That's what litigation is. It's negotiation with a stick, basically. <laughs> yep. That's what it is. Um, and so Universal kind of held out longer than everyone else, but now it appears that they are ramping up their um, ramping up to their settlement, and that will completely put this issue to bed because that also um, EMI, of course, was also involved. But it's very interesting to think about because it realize a lot of these record contracts were written in like the 60s and 70s when this idea of digital distribution was a, a pipe dream and would not have been discussed explicitly. Now, you rest assured, every record label contract mentions digital distribution very explicitly. It right. has terms for it that are very, very clear. And probably now has streaming and everything else, too. But yeah, 20, 30 years ago, no, they didn't. And that's what this is about, is applying that terminology to what's going on in 2015. Yep. And on the topic of settlements and you know the real world of negotiations, this next one, or at least these stipulations, uh, it reads like what would happen if uh, litigation happened in kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Ted law, Ted Ted lawsuit, that you know everybody's seen the movie, or at least you know I've seen heard the movie. about it. Everyone I know has seen the movie because it was hilarious, great film. Um, uh, a second company, I actually don't have their name in front of me. Uh, if you have that, uh, they basically they ran their own, you know, foul mouth teddy bear series. Uh, Online, I had never heard of them. Have you? And Charlie the Abusive Teddy. It's weird. I had actually heard of a different foul-mouthed teddy bear online, but um, not this one. No, I'm not familiar with these guys. Right. So these these creators sued uh, Seth MacFarlane. You know, uh, I guess if you have a foul-mouthed teddy bear and then you're looking at someone else making like 300 million over a, a foul-mouthed teddy bear, you're gonna you're gonna explore your legal options. And they did that, and they sued. And uh, they settled. And uh, interestingly, the uh, the stipulations read like this, and this is why I said it sounded like what would happen if you know uh, kindergarten uh, was where you litigated, because they stipulated that you know, hey, we uh, we filed this lawsuit. Then uh, once we saw the evidence, you know, we saw we were wrong. So I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, we, they were Shake like. Hands. Yep, we, you do you you Seth MacFarlane created this independently, so I think we're done here. And obviously, maybe there was some money on the side, but I just thought the stipulations uh, read kind of exactly what would happen if just like two really honest people sued, or one really honest person sued someone else. We're like, you stole that from me. Oh, you didn't steal that from me. Well, sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> have a good day, good sir. <laughs> I apologize. And that's basically yeah. what happened. And they're they're dismissing their own lawsuit with prejudice, which means it can't be refiled. And basically saying our bad. I believe yeah. the legal term. 
who knows what could be here. Uh, I mean, going on behind the scenes, you, there could be maybe a, a third party with a greater case, and this is posturing on uh, Fox or Seth MacFarlane's side using these stipulations to maybe discourage a third party from suing because you have this other other uh, or the their plaintiffs in this case saying that hey we've seen the evidence of independent creation and we acknowledge it so that's the only thing I thought of is that if, if this is directed at somebody else to to discourage them from filing because obviously discovery is extremely expensive and uh, yeah I don't think McFarlane's side would be happy to produce everything uh, to an and, and the other body. interesting thing is obviously if you are the plaintiffs in this case backing out early is a good idea if you think you might lose this case so badly that you could be hit with legal fees yeah both sides did agree to pay their own legal fees yep and so. this, this uh, just separate and go your own way that's all they're doing and I, I given how much money Seth, it says here that the, the movie brought in half a billion worldwide Hey, I, I'm reasonably sure Seth MacFarlane's not going to be crying over his legal fees in this too bad. Yeah, well, uh, legal fees always suck, no matter how wealthy you are and how successful you are. But yeah, it's it, it, it's it's worth it to dismiss the lawsuit. It's worth it to pay and just you know move on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be very shocked if uh, Seth MacFarlane was paying for his own lawyers. Yeah, that's true too. Uh, in this case, anyways, uh, you know, it's the the studios that have the most to lose. So yeah. Uh, and anyways, no sympathy for you, either one of them. You're the point remains. <laughs> no. They realized they were wrong. They shook hands and have walked away. That simple. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think we can say that for sure because there's no indication of what finances changed hands. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, if I was a creator who felt like some very large corporation had stolen my work and we ended up in legal battles, uh, you know, or at least I had a client that way, I would highly encourage them to say something that the other side may want them to say uh, in exchange for getting a larger settlement. I mean, sure. you won't, first of all, this guy's, these, these, are, these are authors who may, may, may want to work with these people, you know. This is probably the first time in their lives they get to sit down, you know, at a table with some of the more powerful, uh, you know, producers, you know, who knows what happened over the course of the, uh, of the trial, you know, like, uh, and so being able to play nice can get you more money and maybe not blackball you for the rest of your career, uh, in your creative measures. Yeah. And that's possible. It's, it's very possible. That was the reason behind the decision. The way it's written and the way it's worded, it yeah, it makes it look like at least it was a handshake and a and a, and a goodbye. Agreed. Well, we promised we would get back to the Raging Bull case, and we have. And this is very interesting. Now, remember some time ago the Supreme Court ruled on this case, but it only ruled on a specific element of it. Um, the issue at hand is that the uh, plaintiff in this case, Paula Petrella, she is the daughter of one of the uh, co-authors in this case of the book that would eventually become Raging Bull, um, sat on the lawsuit for an extremely long time. You might know that Raging Bull is not a recent film, <laughs> and sat on the allegations for quite some time, and the Supreme Court ruled 
that latches did not bar her from bringing the suit. She would only be eligible to get damages and so forth in the past three years. There is a statute of limitations on copyright infringement, but given that this film is continuously being marketed, exploited, sold, licensed, etc., 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 even with just three years, there's some pretty significant money at stake, basically. Mm -hmm. So with that ability to move forward with the case... Now MGM and others on the defendant side are moving to end it a different and I guess you would say more direct way by actually attacking the copyright claim, copyright infringement claim itself. And they're just basically arguing that, hey, we got the license to use it. What are you talking about, you crazy, crazy person? Yeah, uh, this got into the details that I was previously unaware of in that there was both a book and a screenplay, or was it a manuscript? Uh, no, I think I think there was both a screenplay and a book, and the argument is that which one is the original source material and which one is the derivative work of the other, because uh, if you get a license to use, uh, let's say, a derivative work uh, and end up copying elements of the original material, you haven't quite covered your bases. So uh, that's the argument here, and although uh, the original author is on the record saying that the book is the original material, and uh, I'm okay. I'm, I, and that the the movie is clearly based on the book. Uh, obviously, that is not in the best interest of uh, the daughter to uh, go along with, and so she is arguing otherwise. Yeah, and it's it's going to be an uphill argument for exactly the reason you said. The author, the original author has said it's based upon the book. The screenplay was was kind of just a side thing, didn't really go anywhere. But she's arguing the opposite, that, yes, they licensed the book, but the movie's actually based upon the screenplay. So it's a bizarre situation, but, yes, it could, if the court ends up siding with the daughter, it could be a very, very big um, deal for MGM, who, like I said, has been continuously in exploiting and, earning revenue from this film year after year after year. I mean, it's a, one of sort of milestone picture by m many people. Right, one of, the, so. one of the best films of all time. Yeah, so it, it's going to be a, a big deal one way or the other. But yes, they did decide the case, but they only decided, the Supreme Court rather, did decide the case, but only the el element of latches. So that basically means, well, now we get to have a case is where we're right. at. Right, that's what a lot of people don't know is that Cases that get before the Supreme Court often deal with like minute issues of law and not necessarily like a specific uh, fact pattern that needs to be applied to a settled area of law. You know, it's a, actually very rarely that. Um, and so, a lot of the times, uh, even though this, the case has gone before the Supreme Court, it actually has just gotten started. And the number of cases take various trips because they deal with a few different areas of. Uh, of you know complex areas of law that impact the whole country, and that's why the Supreme Court takes a look at uh, cases sometimes uh, before they're before they're really done. Exactly. Um, so now, basically, now we get a trial, we get a case, <laughs> we get to actually discuss the copyright issues and not just the, the delay. Right, and uh, you know, speaking of uh, copyright issues. Yeah. Uh, Soul Clash. Have you uh, have you had the chance to play it? No, I have not, and it doesn't really look like my type of game anyway. But it is certainly interesting from this perspective. Right. So, you know, what I find interesting is that um, 
you know, elves, dwarves, and pandas. Uh, that doesn't seem to me like a very strong basis for uh, a copyright claim. Um, you know, obviously, I haven't I haven't had the chance to play the game, but one of the uh, one of the interesting aspects is is that Blizzard does uh, oh, oh they do purple elves, right? And it's like, well, how far away from a, a you know a stock character do you have to get before it's really yours? Can you can you put a, a, a unique color into uh, a race of people that have been done in fantasy forever and then claim that that's yours? And you know, Tolkien is going is going to sue a lot of people very quickly, depending on Tolkien estate. You know, it's going to go crazy. Well, I, I don't think. Uh, you no, know, he didn't really have it either. I know. Never. I don't, well, no one owns elves. I mean, yeah. they're they're mythical creatures they're, from uh, way, 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 way back. They're yeah. They're either uh, what's known as Senna Fair, which is kind of like stock settings, or they can be or a stock character or a stock race. Uh, these are, you know, different concepts in copyright law, and no one owns uh, the elf. Yeah. No one owns the dwarf. That that is not actually true. Santa Claus owns the elves, but that's <laughs> a completely different issue. <laughs> well, you know, I I'm not okay with 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 elf slavery. So. No, I'm not I, either. But it, 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 on that one. Free the elves. Free the elves. Um. So, so yeah, this is uh this was a, a case going on in in Taiwanese courts. Um. And I guess we'll see how it develops. I, I I don't know much about the game. I don't know if you want to comment more about this case, but I don't think yeah, I have too much. It, uh, it's, I want to find out too much. Well, and it's like you said, the aspects that center around, first off, are the um the the characters themselves saying that basically it looks like a ripoff of not so much World of Warcraft, but that Hearthstone game. Um, that the card game based upon World of Warcraft. It gets really confusing really fast. World of Hearthstone, I think it is. But the other interesting thing is that in Chinese, and I'm going to totally botch this, the product is called Deota Chuanki, I think so you say Chuanki. And the result of it is there is another game owned by Blizzard called Defense of the Agents, more commonly referred to as Dota. So they're also kind of the trademark angle there, saying that's a little too close to our Dota mark. Um... Which then all that that she might actually have some well pardon the expression given the nature of the game some legs, um, it's all about giant ancients walking or it's a very bizarre game I've only seen footage of it, but yeah I don't know if maybe you know, since it's being filed in Taiwan if maybe there's some difference between U.S. and Taiwanese or Chinese copyright law that makes this more likely but it it feels like a stretch, but then again, we're still really sort of, this is an area of copyright law that's just sort of starting to be explored. The idea of what is defensible in a video game, you know, yeah, we're really just starting to get our feet wet with this. I mean, think of all like the Candy Crush knockoffs. Well, see, this comes to the issue of software copyright, and that becomes quite complicated because then you've got a coding level, and then how it appears as well. Sometimes there's multiple um, levels in which a video game can be a, a copy. Uh, and this is an interesting blend between both video games and the issue of stock characters that yeah. I discussed before. So, so yeah. just to yeah, remind everyone, again, a stock character is kind of a particular, you know, archetype that is used by everyone, like elves or dwarves. And my question is that... If I create a world where, you know, elves are purple and they're short, 
dwarves are red, they're tall and fat. And then humans are all blue. And so if you do all those things and make little variations, which maybe on their own will not be protectable. Um, and so if someone else was using blue humans, uh, you would be fine. But if you take six or seven different stock you know, archetypes, make a little uh, modification, and then someone else takes all of those and copies them, yeah. you know, I think there could be an argument there. in that. You know, and, and there actually has been cases where that's happened. Um, and a, a good example of one actually involves Frankenstein's monster. Um, Frankenstein's monster, as you know, is not copyright in and of itself. It's from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, public domain book, been around for a long time. But Universal, and I bet you got an article about it on Plagiarism Today, Universal has effectively copyrighted their version of it. And when trying to compare two versions of Frankenstein's monster, they look at various features like the flat top head, the scar, the bolts in the neck, uh, the green skin, all of which is unique to Universal's version and not found in the actual original character. And they have a whole checklist where if you violate more than you know a couple of these, they will send you a cease and desist. They actually have a whole right. process for it. So there's a, a very specific way to get a copyright in, in essentially what is a derivative work. Even though the, so if the original work is, still, is, is, is in the public domain, obviously anything that uh, uses elements contained in that particular uh, version of the story you know, can be used by every by, by anyone. In most cases, there might there could be trademark uh, issues involved, etc. But the, the from a copyright perspective, you're fine. And but if you want to create a, your own kind of version of that, you kind of have to watch out to see if someone else has 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 made their own version and then gotten a copyright on that. So if if yeah. you make a film about Frankenstein, you know, that's set in you know modern day Japan. Where Frankenstein is 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 you know you know instead of a monster he's uh, you know someone who works all the time you know just something ridiculous that's just different you know you can get a copyright in that even though you're you're essentially borrowing a storyline or a general the general feeling of a storyline that that anyone can do yeah and another good example is the Wizard of Oz and that whole uh, mess most of us know Wizard of Oz as um, as the movie, the original Judy Garland movie, 1939, uh, but it was originally a series of books, and the books have been long, long since um, slid into the public domain. L. Frank Baum, the author of the books, uh, they slid into the public domain, and but there are elements from the Wizard of Oz movie which are unique, one of them being the ruby slippers. Hmm, I didn't know the, that. The slippers in the original book were silver. Um, and they actually made them ruby in the movie, and this is true, because they wanted to show off the Technicolor process, and they figured the red slippers would show up really good against the yellow background, and they, they were right. Um, it was not necessarily a bad change. Um, and if you ever get a chance to read the original Wizard of Oz books, the, uh, I, I, the Oz books, I encourage you. There are, there are children's books. They're a brisk read, and it's really funny to go back and watch the movie afterward because in the movie, there's like all this buildup, beginning, a whole black and white sequence of the movie is like one page of the children's book. It's like, uh, yeah, farm girl, tornado, boom, and Oz. Okay, story begins. 
Uh, it's like over like that. So the entire black and white portion of the film could be considered copyrightable for the same reasons. That was a unique storytelling element they added. So you got to be mindful of that stuff. And when they did, and this is also true, Return to Oz, the sequel, is not related to the original movie at all. It did not have permission, so they had to be very careful in producing it not to pull too excessively from the movie and make sure they stick as close to the books as they could. Interesting. I mean, uh, I I think that uh, just for complete argument's sake, uh, if you added uh, more than, I would say three or four small additions uh, to stock characters. Uh, and then someone else stole that exactly. I would argue that mm, some courts might recognize the copyright, but you know, specifically uh, outline that it is an extremely thin copyright. And what that means is that someone has to copy what you've done literally and exactly for in order for there to be infringement. So this that's one way to kind of get around this uh, issue of like we don't want to give people copyrights in very uh, for for very minute additions to public domain material because then you're essentially uh, you know stopping other people. Works. Well, you're not recopyrighting it because the original material won't uh, and can still be used. But what you're doing is that you're kind of stifling creativity by letting someone get ownership of Red Frankenstein. Like, really, that's not enough, man. But if you have, you know, you know, a, a number of small changes, like in the case that we discussed, you have, you know, blue humans, purple elves, you know, red dwarves, and those things are red all borrowed dwarf. specifically. Have you ever seen the show Red Dwarf? I'm sorry. Uh, no, I haven't. I, I, check just, it out. Just Sorry, to interrupt. Red Dwarf is actually a TV show, and it's hilarious. It's from UK. <laughs> so yeah, if you if you can kind of balance the the, the public uh, interest in having uh, copyright only granted for uh, you know sufficiently creative derivative works with the uh, desire to you know stop blatant copycats and blatant uh, theft of ideas. Uh, or the expression of ideas, and, and and that way you kind of grab the copyright, but say that it's extremely thin, and then that kind of, that way you're kind of pleasing both sides of of the argument. But uh, Red Dwarf, the show, uh, tell me about it. It's a uh, science science fiction comedy. It's from uh, not it's from the UK. It's a British TV show. Um, basically, it's about the last human being in the universe. He it's three it's set three million years in the future, and it features his exploits with an android. Named Crichton, the the ancestor of the cat he smuggled aboard the ship, and a hologram okay. named Rimmer that is brought to life to keep him from going insane. It's basically those four guys trying to get back to Earth, and they're all basically idiots. And it's it's, it's actually a, it's imagine like you know Star Trek, but com everyone's a moron type thing. Uh, what what decade is this from? Um, it actually spans a lot of decades. It started in the 90s. They just did another series, though, a couple of years ago. Where can I find it? Uh, actually, all episodes, last I checked, are on Netflix. All right. I will I will check it out. Um, uh, that reminds me of that show I've been meaning to check out, like The Last Man on Earth. Yeah. Um, I know uh, Crystal and Ellie here watch it and enjoy it. So they uh, – yeah, we've – 
I have not seen much of it, but it has been playing in the house. Cool. So it, it apparently it's pretty good. It, it seems to be actually pretty enjoyable, though I have to say I'm kind of disappointed. I was I caught a few minutes of it, and there were four human beings on Earth now, which seems to be decidedly more than the title promised. Yeah, that made, but uh, I did see that they do like flashbacks. So was it was it a flashback scene? I don't honestly know. I mean, that's why I can't give you a spoiler because I have no idea if it's a flashback or if it's actual currently what's going on. But it seems like there's a lot more people on Earth than you would think for a show called Last Man on Earth. But then again, the actual, you know, um, like I Am Legend and The Last Man on Earth, those movies had more people. So, right. Saying. But they didn't and, have be kind of, kind of boring. specifically advertising The Last Man on Earth. Yeah, exactly. Maybe there were women. Oh, that must have been it. There's their way to get around yeah. the title. Um. There you so, go. So, uh, Music Stars go turquoise for the relaunch. Yeah, real, real quick, I want to talk about this since it's been so much publicity about it. Uh, Jay Z, we I, I don't know if we talked about it here, but uh, it was uh, uh, not that long ago. He spent fifty six million dollars buying a music streaming service called Tidal. It's T A D I L, like the ocean Tidal. I know I say it like Tidal. We talked about it last show. I think we did, yeah. And he very, very quickly apparently has turned it around and relaunched it. And mm. the basic idea behind Tidal is that it is a high-fidelity music streaming service for twenty dollars a month, which is double what you get for a paid account. Pay for a paid account on Spotify, you get access to lossless audio that you can stream to any device that you may have. And you know, and the, the reason it's gotten so much publicity is like we like you hinted is that. All of these musicians are on board with it and making a big deal about it. They are promoting it very actively, whether it's Madonna, Daft Punk, I think, was there. Um, you have, you know, Nicki Minaj, um, a whole bunch of musicians really throwing their weight behind it in a very strong way, all across a wide variety of genres. And they're sort of pitching this as the, hey, this is the artist's vision of what a music streaming service should be like. It features high-quality audio, offers some music videos, so the music video library kind of is not the best, you know. Yeah. And the result is they've really pitched this as the artist vision of what a music streaming service should be. I just don't know if it's the consumer vision of what a music streaming service should <laughs> be. That's an excellent point. I think I think I'm stuck on the same thing we talked about last time, which is that when I when I when I put my headphones in and you know not even any particular set of headphones because I'm I'm uh, I'm not exactly a, a high end headphone purchaser or user. When yeah, I we're both sitting in, here with our iPhone headphones in. Yeah, if I'm walking down the street and I'm I'm walking to work or I'm walking you know so I put my Spotify on and I get that song that I like you know I'm feeling pretty good and I I, I think the sound quality is pretty good and. You know, maybe maybe I'm not quite an autophile, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a mass market that is so upset with their streaming quality that they're going to yeah. pay double for uh, for a new service that uh, you know has a few brighter faces on it. I, I'm not I'm not sold on that concept. I'll tell you what what we did. I actually signed up for the free trial title, and what I did is I got the iPhone out. And one of my favorite bands is Local Age. So I took one of their modern songs where I knew there'd be a good lossless version. And I listened to the two versions back to back. And with Spotify's normal 96 kilobit per second stream, I could hear the difference. But if I had not been sitting there, eyes closed, really paying attention, 
and write back to back, I wouldn't have known. I just flat out would not have known. And so if like I'm running and I've got those Bluetooth headphones on, you know, that mediocre quality, yep. I'm not going to tell the difference at all. Yeah. Um, and I also took it and I passed it around to other people in the house, and the result was, you know, they could tell the difference at the lower quality, but once we bumped up, Spotify has the option to crank it up to 320 kilobit per second streaming for free if you have a pro account. It's no additional cost. And once we did that, no one could tell the difference between the two, between the lossless and 320 kilobit per second. It's just yeah. non-existent. Well, you know, this so. is obviously targeted at the market um, that, that, that already spends money on, like, great headphones, you know. The, yeah, the Beats audio crowd and all that. Well, most people tell me that Beats aren't even that good, although, I, I you know, I don't I, – I really have no opinion on it because I, I don't own a pair, so uh, I can't really speak to it. But, uh, you know, anyone who's got, you know, the big headphones, you know, you, you know usually I – and I could be completely wrong here, but if you have something that's going to go around your whole year in 2015, it's because you're really concerned about sound quality. Yeah, I'd agree. You know, if you're not using a, a, a bud, it's because you want to cut everything else out, which is, of course, uh, a quality that's only found in you know great quality headphones, and you want your music to come in very well. So, uh, obviously, with the success of Beats. Uh, and you know its rise to a multi-billion-dollar company, they obviously s see there's a market for people who really care about the quality of yeah. their uh, of, of their music. But one of the things I think they're not thinking about is that uh, I think Beats, while was an audio concern, it was also a fashion concern. Yeah, it's it was more of a fashion a fashion statement, wasn't it? I it should was, have said Bose or something like that when I hump when really harping yeah. on the audio quality. Yeah, I mean, Bose is obviously has the, you know, the brand recognition has fantastic audio quality, but I, f I feel like people bought Beats because they were like, hey, you know, like I'm I'm a big first of all I'm a big fan of Dr. Dre and um I'm gonna I'm gonna proudly wear his his brand and and his, you know, his branding was sleek, you know, that it was just like well done and and so no one's gonna be able to wear on their shirt that they're listening. To uh, title or title, yeah. so that's that's I think uh, a point that might um, that might doom, for lack of a better word, uh, a luxury streaming service. Yeah, I I'm not I, I I will say this title is my second favorite music streaming service. I like it a lot better than what Sony had, um, and like Rhapsody and others I've tried. It's got a pretty solid library. It's missing some names that I need or I would really like to have at least. But um, overall, it is a good service. It's got a good UI. It's a good look. The sound, of course, is great, but I don't know if I can justify $20 a month versus $9 a month. You know, it just – and especially in my house because we have uh, the family plan. We get two streams for 15 You can't even get the, uh, the lower-end tier of Tidal for that price for two streams. So – you know, I, there's no there's no winning here for me. Um, but no, I, I mean, I wish them well. I hope they find w what they're looking for, and I hope they they find that niche of that um that elite uh, high end uh, music streaming service. I think it's there. I just don't know if it's big enough to support this type of service. I mean, obviously, they're they have huge goals because as much as you know, those artists are about the music. You know, they're about the dollar, and oh, yeah. so to to come together in support. 
of the service obviously uh, or in my opinion was motivated by maybe equity stake or uh, well, I mean I, I don't know if it says which one of those artists have equity stake I, I imagine they all do um, but I think that's obviously the the big the big goal of these artists is that uh, they want they want their piece of the next beats uh, but our concerns have been laid out on the table about whether or not luxury music without the ability to really brand yourself as someone who's you know using a luxury item uh, can survive. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's going to be an interesting test. Well, that's all I've got. Do you got any final thoughts? Anything else? Not too much, John. Just that uh, I'd like to say how happy I am that winter is over. It's never over. You you live in the north. It's never. No, over. I live in DC. Uh, we had the uh, Washington Post officially declare the end of winter and the end of cold weather uh, on Sunday. Oh, well, there you go. I guess it's official. I can't argue with that. It's official now. Well, on that note, everyone, we had official proclamation out of the way. My name is Jonathan Bailey. I am from the site Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com and also on Twitter, Facebook, elsewhere at Plagiarism Today. And my name is Evan Sherris. Follow me on Twitter uh, at... Evan Sherris. I know that John will tell you in a second that he thinks I should have a website, but yes, I don't. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to uh, talking copyright again, hopefully uh, next That's week on schedule. Yeah. Sounds great. And hopefully we'll iron out these bugs in the uh, Q&A and do a little better job promoing when we'll be on. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you guys next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixture.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. Me